And I suppose that our topic today may seem a little mundane or maybe even irrelevant to some people. I can imagine a person seeing the title of today's message and thinking, well, there won't be anything new here this morning. Now, I'm pretty sure that that will not be the case. I think many of us here may have a new appreciation for what the Bible says to us in this passage. But what I do know is that we need to be reminded as often as we need to be taught. So even if there's nothing new for you here today, then take this as God's reminder to you of his revealed will and truth and ask yourself, why did God bring me here today to hear this message? You know, that's never an irrelevant endeavor. That's the kind of thing our God always blesses. It is not by accident that you are here today. Nor is it just by chance that the rest of us are in this place at this time. With all of my heart, I believe God has brought us together to speak to us today as he does every Sunday in all of his churches all around the globe. The God who spoke the world into existence still speaks in our day. And I, for one, am glad that he does. Now, over the last several weeks, we have seen what God has had to say to us through his word as it has told us um, what a believer should look like, what, what kind of heart we should have in our relationships with other believers or those who are outside the faith or how even we should be toward those who mistreat us. And so it shouldn't really surprise us that God would have something to say to us about our relationship to the government. But this is the thing. Here, as well as everywhere else, God is not just concerned with our actions. His real concern is with our heart. And that's why this message, I think, could be so vital. It speaks to the condition of our heart, to our attitudes and our thoughts, which affects how we live. Now, are you confident that your house is in order, that you have nothing to answer for uh, when it comes to this matter, or is it just possible that you might need to make some changes? Well, the answer to that question, I think, waits for us in today's text. So I want to invite you to join me once again in the book of Romans, this time chapter 13, where we're going to be considering verses 1 through 7, and of course the text will be up on the screen on either side of me. So we're considering just seven verses here this morning, but they're rather significant. One commentator has said this passage contains what are perhaps the most important Important words ever written for the history of political thought. Yet it would be a gross mistake to suppose that men at any time took their political opinions from St. Paul. But then another person has said, these seven verses have caused more unhappiness and misery in the Christian East and West than any other seven verses in the New Testament. Now which is it? Well, the resolution to that dilemma lies in how we interpret it. That makes all the difference in the world and how this is applied and how it impacts our world. 
there is trouble any time the Word of God is taken out of its immediate context and the larger context of Scripture. The Bible is always its best interpreter. And the first thing we need to understand before we even begin is that this text that we're looking at today is not all the Bible has to say on this subject. If we were writing a a complete theology on God's ideas about human government, we might very well start here. This might serve as a starting point, but it certainly is not the end of the matter. Paul is writing to a specific group of people living under the Roman government, which was at that time mostly benign when it came to matters of faith. Now, that will change, and so the Bible in other places addresses what those changes would mean for the believer, but not here. That's not the purpose of this text. So let's begin our time together, our study of this, of what a government should be, according to his, uh, God's world, as it's revealed in this passage. And so verse 4 tells us that all human government should do good to the good and punish the wrongdoer. So we read in verse 4, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, then be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So this verse tells us that the basic reason that government exists, and, uh, and they may do many other things, but their foundation, what they're built on, or what they should be built on, is that they do good to the good, and they punish the wrongdoer. So those governments or those officials who do that are God's servants. That's what the text says. And it's from this passage and others like it that we understand that governments are an expression of what some call God's common grace, meaning that God established them as an act of mercy and blessing on all people, whether or not they are believers. So governments can't get you into heaven, that's not their function, but they can promote the common good and protect us from the malicious. Now last week, uh, I mentioned uh, some of the old Wild West movies that many of us grew up with. And I told you at that time, the common plot among them was that there'd be a town full of uh, ordinary, hard-working people who just wanted to make a life for themselves and for their families, but who are oppressed by a a band of outlaws or a greedy neighbor willing to do anything, hurt other people just to get his or her own way. And so they end up sending for the lawmen. Now they usually arrive at that point by confronting the mayor, and and it might be telling uh, of our cultural attitudes to governments that the mayor is usually old, or dim-witted, or inept, or a coward, or all of those things. Huh. <laughs> Does that tell us anything about our culture's attitude about government? But under pressure, the mayor always concedes, and the hired gun is sent for. And the lawman, then he comes, and, and he sets things straight. Now that making an allowance for the skew of our culture is a pretty good illustration 
of what government is supposed to do. The evildoers are punished, usually. As we said last week in the movies, they're left dead in the street. And yet, that is a historic understanding of the Christian faith that, that such is the right of government. They have the right to use capital punishment. That's what bearing the sword, not bearing it in vain, means. It's not the only use of the sword which a government has, but it has one of its uses. And the common good here is also promoted. Good is done to those who are good. They can go about their lives now without fear, and they can care for their family. That's what governments at their base are supposed to do. Now, if you were here last week, and even if you weren't, you, you understand, but if you were here last week, I, I want you to notice something if you haven't already. Last week, I used the same illustration to point out that as Christians, we are not to take vengeance. That if we were in that movie, we'd have had to try to make friends with the bad guys, which everyone in the theater once is dead, so we could help them change their way. We're not allowed to take vengeance. That belongs to God and only to God. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Yet the vengeance is exactly what happened in those movies. It was not exacted, however, by the believer acting on his or her own. It came from God's servant in whose hands God has placed the sword. If the state is acting as the state should act, the vengeance was the Lord's. And that's an important distinction for us. The state is to punish wrongdoers. We are not to take vengeance. Now, that doesn't mean a Christian can't serve in government, uh, despite what some sects say. But, but he or she must put their feelings aside and act as God's servant on behalf of the people. And their goal is to do good to the good and to punish the wrongdoers. Now, that's what government is supposed to do. But we know, don't we, that all governments don't do that. <laughs> None of them do it consistently. Some are better than others, but some are downright evil. So how should you and I act? What should our hearts be like if we were to find ourselves in a place where the government is almost completely evil? For say, for example, a, a place like North Korea. Now, this isn't an academic question for some believers. They live there in a place where Christians are brutally assaulted by the government as a matter of policy. What ought our hearts to look like then? Well, to begin to understand that question, we need to know that God has not lost control. That all governments exist by God's providence and for his reasons even if we don't understand it now there's more to say about this but whatever government exists they exist because god allows it so verse one we read this but let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which god has established the authorities that exist have been established by god now, as hard as it may be to understand, and I think it is very hard, the Bible says governments, good and bad, exist because God has established them. Uh, now, there's a 
really important truth in, in this verse that I want to come back to, but first I really need to talk about what we just read. And, and to do that, I want to remind you of some history from the Old Testament. So God had brought his people out of bondage in Egypt, and eventually, you know the story, they, uh, they settled in the promised land. They had God's law, but they didn't do a very good job of obeying it. They got themselves into trouble because of sin over and over again. And eventually they would call out to God who would send them a deliverer, a judge, who would get them out of their mess. And eventually the judge would die and the process would repeat itself. At some point, the Israelites demanded a king. Now I want you to understand something. It was always God's intention to give them a king. You cannot sincerely have read the Old Testament without seeing that. God gave instructions about the king to Moses before they ever entered the land, and those instructions couldn't apply to Jesus. It spoke about sinful human beings. Government is God's idea, not ours. And the book of Judges shows, among other things, how poorly people, even those who have God's law, get along without it. And yet the Israelites went about this thing all the wrong way. They were demanding. They were wanted to be like the other nations. The timing wasn't God's. Uh, they weren't trusting in God. They wanted to put their trust in some mere man who they thought would fight their battles for them. God gave them what they wanted, but it was a stopgap measure until David, the one God had in mind, was ready to resume that role. So David became king. He, he had some issues, but uh, overall he did a good job. The government operated pretty much as it should. His son Solomon then became king, and though he was a great king and had great wisdom, he didn't have his father's heart. So when his son became king after him, God took ten of the tribes away from the house of David, and he gave them to Jeroboam. God established the governments of both David and Jeroboam. God gave David a lasting kingdom, and we know that Christ will sit on David's throne in the coming kingdom. But God promised Jeroboam an enduring dynasty if he would live like David with the kind of heart that David had for God. But he went badly wrong, and he led Israel into idolatry. But God established both governments. And then people took what God had given them and made them into what they became, something other than God intended. Just like we do with so many other things. God gives you a spouse or a family, and when you get your hands on it, what do you do with it? If you bruise it or break it, is that God's fault? So God establishes governments, but people lay their hands on them, and the results are not always good. Yes, but you might be thinking, does God establish even communist governments? I mean, how could that be? And I have to tell you, I love our democracy. I wish everyone could live under such circumstances as we have known historically here in this nation. But let me ask you honestly, haven't we learned 
Hasn't history shown us that democracy cannot survive without the moral convictions that we as a nation embraced, at least we had embraced them at one time? Well, I mean, we've tried to establish democracies in other parts of the world with little success because the people are not capable of governing themselves. Someone or something has to put some kind of order into their lives. Our nation was established on Judeo-Christian principles which recognized the sinful nature of man and took steps to limit its effect. And yet even now in our own nation, we're fast losing the ability to govern ourselves because we've let go of God and we've begun to embrace anything and everything calling good evil and evil good. I have to tell you something. If it wasn't for sin, communism might be the best government that you could have. But in our world as it stands now, it doesn't work. And yet, it may be that some people need to discover that truth through the difficulties they encounter. They're just incapable of learning it in any other way. History shows us something. It shows us that slavery in its various forms is the level that humankind always sinks to without God. It's only with God uh, that there can be real freedom. He is the one who says, let my people go. And Israel itself learned that from its slavery in the land of Egypt. Now, is any of that God's fault? Or is he just doing and dealing with people as they are, giving them the kind of government they need? And, and, and people get their hands on it, and they maybe make it better, but probably they make it worse. I have to tell you, there's so much more going on here than just governments. I mean, God is at work in our world to bring people to the place out of salvation. He will do what he has to do. And he puts people where they are for his purposes. And believers are where they are, often in hard circumstances, to share in the sufferings of Christ, to show others how to bear up under unjust suffering, and as a witness in place for the salvation that there is in Jesus Christ. Governments are established by God. They are ruined by humans. And every nation has been established by God. And men affect that. Even the nation of Israel had to be set aside because they failed in that calling. So I have to tell you that, that governments uh, which exist have been established by God, and that's a clear teaching of this passage. There's no getting around it. <laughs> Even if they're failing to do good to the good or to punish the wrong. And that brings us back to that important idea, which I mentioned a little bit ago, that I said we'd come back to. And that idea says, because all governments have been established by God, we need to submit to them. As outrageous as that might seem, please stay with me, for there's more to say about this. But in that verse 1, that's what it says. Allow me to read it again. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which is God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. 
good or bad, we are to be in submission to the government because it was established by God. Now, you can begin to understand how these verses, misunderstood, misapplied by both rulers and those under them, could cause such misery in our world. A king or a queen who thinks they can do anything, or a peasant who believes he or she must obey everything, is a formula for wretchedness and desolation. But I know what you want to ask me. You want to say, but isn't that what it means to be in a submission? No, not exactly. See, we have to submit, but we don't always have to obey. Uh, let me explain to you. There, there are times when to disobey the government uh, is uh, vital to do. Uh, the early church knew this. They exclaimed, we must obey God rather than men. Indeed, we can say we must not Obey if it means by doing so we sin. Submission is not the same thing as obedience. They usually coincide, but not always. Submission is a matter of the heart. It's a recognition that there are legitimate authorities over us. And for the Christian, they understand that obeying such authorities amounts to obeying God. But never is it right to do wrong. And our, our military, our American military, anyway, is a good example of the distinction. Command order is a way of life. You are to be in submission to your superiors. You're to obey the one who is over you. You are to do so even if you are smarter than him or her, and you are to obey him or her even if they are as dumb as a stump. But you are obligated by the military code of conduct to disobey any and every unethical order as defined by that code. Submission is a way of life, but obedience is a choice based on moral standing of the order. And if we live in a corrupt or compromised government, we submit to it in every way we can. But we are to disobey any moral, any immoral command. Now, sometimes that truth works its way out into the bigger arenas of life. I mean, Jesus was a model Jew and citizen, but he stood against the distortions and corruptions of both the religious and civil leaders of his day, and the world has not been to the same since. Martin Luther defied the power of the emperor and the pope and started a movement that swept the Western world and brought new life to millions of nominal Christians. The Underground Railroad in our country disobeyed authorities and delivered slaves into glorious freedom. The French resistance fought and struck a blow against the fascist forces of its day. Martin Luther King marched against the injustices of our segregated nation and for the enduring good of our people, black and white, and of every color. And Lech Walesa stood against the communist government of Poland and helped usher in freedom that they had only ever dreamed of. Do you think God disapproved of any of that? Submission is an attitude of the heart. Obedience is a moral choice. Now, the two last quotes I hope will help us understand this. First, 
Christians will voice their no to Caesar's unauthorized demands the more effectively if they have shown themselves ready to say yes to his authorized demands. And secondly, the evidence shows how in the face of gross provocation, Christians maintain their proper loyalty to the state, not the least of Rome itself, and the patience and faith of the saints wore down the fury of persecution. Such deliverance may not come in our time or in our way, but God is faithful, and we trust in him. In the meantime, we submit and obey as we can. Now, there's a couple more things in this passage which we have to look at um, to round out our understanding. So a corollary to our submission is, of course, that we ought not to rebel against the government. So verse 2 says this, Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Uh, God instituted the government that exists, whatever that government is, so we ought not to rebel, rebel against it. And there are two reasons offered for that. The first is that rebelling against the government is actually rebelling against God. So when a child is left with the babysitter and that child disobeys the babysitter, he or she is actually disobeying mom and dad. And that child, if the parents are doing their job, will discover that important truth when the babysitter goes home. And then two, those who rebel against the government uh, 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 are storing up judgment upon themselves. And again, we noted last time that God will delay his judgment in order to give people time to repent. But all the while as God's working towards their repentance, those people can be living in such a way that they are piling up condemnation. And it's kind of like a little boy who was told to clean his room and he starts throwing everything into the closet, right? And, and he soon finds out that the stuff he's thrown in the closet won't stay in there unless he shuts the door. So he shuts the door, and he picks up another toy, and he opens it and tosses it in and slams it shut, or maybe he squeezes it in after a time, and he slams the door. And that's a great plan until Mom comes in the room and wonders what the closet looks like and tells him to open the door. And crash, it all comes down. That's what it means to store up rebellion. And I want to tell you something. I want to explain something to you. The rebellion the text is talking about here is not our deliberate disobedience as we're trying to keep a higher law. And, it, and it's uh, not even referencing our occasional sins. It's really addressing the condition of our hearts. See, the Greek verb there indicates a kind of a fixed attitude. It's a decision of the heart that was made in the past, but which continues in force into the present. The person in mind here is someone who resents authority. Someone who thinks, though maybe it's right for other people to obey, the rules were not made for such a one as him or her. No authority is significant to them. They resist it all, and although they may not voice it, their heart says, God himself has no right to tell me anything. And should they join a revolution, and they very well might, you can be sure they will be no happier or more submissive under the new government than they were under the old. What they want is to make the rules. They have no intention of keeping them. And when they do keep those rules, it, it's only out of necessity. Antifa, 
know who I'm talking about. It's been in the news. It's a good, current example of what we're talking about here. That's the kind of rebellion that the text has in mind. And, and as you can understand, disobedience for them becomes a way of life, and such people cause a constant rumble of conflict wherever they go. So, earlier, when, when I mentioned some of those uh, whose disobedience, uh, which was based on uh, keeping a higher moral principle, worked its way into the larger arenas of life, you may have noticed that I, I didn't mention our own Revolutionary War. You know, in those other cases, the disobedience was limited in scope, but the circumstances so evolved to make it into a kind of a movement. It's not clear to me that's entirely the case when it comes to our story. I do recognize, indeed, it was an element, but maybe there was something else going on there. Have you ever asked yourself the question? I mean, honestly, have you ever asked yourself the question, because of the beginning, the way we started, is our nation legitimate? Have you ever thought maybe we were wrong when we rebelled way back then? And an easy out to that dilemma is to say, well, however it started, it's a nation now, and so God must have established it. And I can't gainsay that. But beyond that simple solution, there's good reason to believe that those who led the fight for independence tried to remain in submission. Uh, and they disobeyed only when their conscience told them it was wrong to obey. And whatever mistakes they may have made that you could point out, and as we as humans, we know we all make mistakes. Or whatever other paths you might think they should have taken or tried to take, you and I weren't there. Yet You know what adds immeasurably to their credibility is that they were not rebellious in heart. They were willing to be submissive to the new authority just as they were the old authority. Rebellion didn't follow rebellion. Instead, a solid and stable government was formed which God has blessed and which has been a positive impact and influence in our world. And that says a great deal to me. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with that thought, but I have. And this helps me understand God established my nation, and he was in it from the very beginning. Rebellion, when it describes a human heart, is storing up wrath against itself. Now, everything we've said so far this morning applies to the believer and the unbeliever. The text has really included all from the very beginning, from the opening words of verse 1, which translates the Greek word every soul, meaning every living person. It is applied specifically to the Christians, but it includes everyone. And the last thing we want to do briefly this morning is to uh, consider that thing in the text that speaks directly to believers. The unbeliever may benefit by taking this to heart, but Christian is a target of these verses. And they speak directly to something we have been talking about already all morning, and that is the part our heart plays in all of this. It's possible, I think, although certainly not probable, 
given what we know about the faith. But it's possible to read this entire passage as though it were dealing only with the outside of things. That is, the text is only concerned with our behavior. But that possibility utterly evaporates when we come to verses 5 through 7, which tells us it's not merely out of fear that we ought to obey, but as a matter of good conscience before all that we obey. So we read in verse 5, Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. And there's that idea of a heart captured in that word, conscience, so we must submit. We read on in verse 6, This is also why you pay taxes for the authorities or God's servants who give their full time to governing. So uh, it, it gets even more interesting. Do you mean that paying taxes is not just something that we must do, but, uh, but that someone else benefits from it? Someone who gives their full time to that work and they're servants? And yes, there are things that we object to having our tax dollars go towards, but does that account for all of our reluctance when it comes to this duty? And then finally in verse 7, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So it's not just about the wallet after all. It's not just about what we do, like paying our taxes. It's all about the inside, about our heart, about the kind of people we who we are is not always very obvious from the outside. Sometimes in the things that we do, we don't look much different than the world around us. We don't want to pay a fine, neither do they, so we keep the law. Uh, messing with the IRS doesn't seem reasonable to them. It doesn't seem reasonable to us either, so we pay our taxes. But for us who believe, that's not all there is. For we would disobey if it meant by that disobedience we honored God. And we would take the heat, no matter what it was. Greater than any fear for us, for the believer, is the desire to have a good conscience, a good heart before God and before all people. And, and that good heart, that clear conscience, it makes a difference everything that we do. It makes a difference in who we are. Do you know what a good heart allows you to do? It allows you to be transparent. A, a, a good heart allows you to be open and honest. And, and something happens then. People no longer see only you and me. They begin to see someone so much more important. Someone who can change their heart of stone into a living, beating heart. A loving heart. Someone who can make them live forever in glory. They see Jesus Christ in us and through us. And next to that, what else matters? Governments, good or bad? Submission, even when it's hard? The rebellious when they get their way? No, none of that matters. <laughs> Compared to the glory of Christ, all of that fades away. It is not always the case, but all human government should 
do good to the good and punish those who do wrong. And yet, even when they fail at this, they exist by God's providence and for his reasons. Which means we must submit when we can and disobey when we must. It means the kind of people whose heart resists authority are resisting God and are storing up wrath against themselves. And finally, it's not only from fear, but as a matter of good conscience. Before all, God and people, that we submit, we pay taxes, we give to all what they owe them, taxes or debts. And as we live this life, as we live, this way we make our Savior Jesus Christ a little more visible and that's something really good to know we have so much to be grateful for in this country our form of government has served us well and we could bless people with that if we could God is God and he's at work everywhere in our world even in those dark places and I think you and I need to understand that it's God's word he wants us to know so may you glad for what you have. May you pray for those around you. And may you make sure your heart is as it should be when it comes to this country. Be in submission. Obey when you can and disobey when you must. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for, um, for just um, your faithfulness to us. Uh, Lord, we're so glad that you are at work in our lives and that you are at work in our country. Father, I want to just take a moment and pray for our nation. Lord Jesus, you told us that a house divided against itself can't stand. We can look at our nation today and see that's exactly where we are. And whatever our views of the politics of the moment, Lord, there's a real truth that we need to grasp and understand that the only thing that can deliver this country, the only thing that can save it is that we would be united as a people once again under the cross of Christ, that you would send revival, that we might become once again a gospel light in the world. Or whatever that means, by your grace we'll embrace it. Jesus' name.